Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Freaknik started as some black shit to the core. Nobody knew it was going to turn into what it did, but it did. But they were everywhere, too, like, you know, when you hit one of them, them pregnant spiders and all the spiders jump off his ass and they scatter everywhere, that's how many niggas was here. <laughs> We're here, baby, and this is where we gonna stay. I am black, beautiful, proud. City awakened this morning to a new scare, word of yet another missing black child. I don't know that I've ever seen women dance that way. <laughs> We're proud to be black. Black is beautiful, baby. It's pretty. Yeah, that was the beginning of the booty dance. <laughs> Hello, Dillard University! I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready to celebrate. I'm Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. Black, unapologetically black. That's what Atlanta is, period. No matter what they want to say, like how people say, like, no, they all say, like, you got to go to the black culture to figure out what's next. Atlanta is the black culture. That was Rico Wade. So in this episode, we're going to kind of take a little detour from our regularly scheduled programming. We need to really understand Atlanta to understand Freaknik to both of which the term unapologetically black applies. What does the term unapologetically mean? We all use that in common parlance, but I wanted to like know exactly what it meant. So I went to uh, Webster's.com on the internet, as it's called today. Great site, great dictionary. And looked it up. Unapologetically. In a manner that does not acknowledge or express regret. And that's some ill shit. All the time. From food, clothes, from conversation, and we got the civil rights people. We got a lot of pride here. We got a lot of pride because Nomana Jackson was one of the first black mayors. Marvin Arrington, Shirley Franklin, like all of them are like important. Kasim, Kasim was in school with Bernard Parks. Bernard Parks managed Goody Mob. Like Shirley, Shirley, Franklin, Shirley Franklin's daughter, um, Kai, Went to school, like, like Marvin Arrington's son, Marvin Arrington Jr., Amanda Jackson's son, Buzzy. So we got not just them, they kids went to school with, with us. So to a certain degree, it's a little more, we, we saw the line that they had to hold. To me, the term unapologetically black kind of speaks to Rico's laundry list of names. And all the interconnectivity of black culture, black civil leadership, black music, and black business in the city of Atlanta. I mean, legit, niggas stay running this town. Amongst these names was Marvin Arrington Sr., an iconic figure in Atlanta politics since the late 60s, and in the 90s, a perennial thorn in Mayor Campbell's side. As Rico intimated, generational legacy is intrinsic to the foundation of black Atlanta, 
so he reached out to his son, Marvin Arrington Jr., drove out to the suburbs of South Fulton, and interviewed him at his crib. Here's Marvin in Marvin's room on Maynard. That's a DiCaprio reference. Uh, Maynard went to Morehouse, man. We just showed um, his documentary as part of my annual Black History Film Festival. Maynard entered Morehouse at the age of 14 uh, and was mayor at the age of 35. Yeah, so a, a very good friend of mine, his father made that film. Uh, it's great. Yes. To some extent, he was, for, for, for lack of a better term, Obama before Obama, right? But I guess I was so close to it. I mean, Omena and his children, went. we all went to the same elementary school, middle schools, high school. Maynard Jackson the third Buzzy, was in my homeroom in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and lived less than a mile away. We rode bikes together and everything, just grew up together. I further swear. I further swear. That I will uphold and support. That I will uphold and support. The Constitution and laws. The Constitution and laws. Of the United States. Of the United States. And of the state of Georgia. And of the state of Georgia. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Miller. Thank you. Back to George Hawthorne, expert on all things business-like. Well, you know, uh, from 1977, when you had Mayor Jackson come in as the first African-American leader in the, in the nation, and there was a source of black power and black political uh, growth here, and you had, when Maynard, when Maynard came in, he actually created the first quote-unquote affirmative action program when he developed the Equal Business Opportunity Program, where he's mandated that 30% of every city contract, every city procurement had had to go to minority businesses. Mm-hmm. And so he created a legislative path for, you know, economic growth in the black community and for small black businesses. And so I think that and the growth of African-American millionaires and successful businesses at that time was probably the greatest in the uh, nation. If you're in a strong mayor form of city government, as we are here in Atlanta, you can really see changes begin to take place because you can make your imprint. There is a growing sophistication by black people. They understand this. We understand that we can't change everything overnight. The elected official's job is to be accountable, to be dedicated, to be honest, and to try to change the inequities overnight. Maynard, as told by Michael Harvey, the Freaknik lawyer. Maynard is a champion. Maynard is a champion. The day after Maynard was elected mayor of Atlanta for the first time, I was visiting Tuskegee. I wasn't, I had already finished school, but I had gone back um, to visit some friends. And I'm walking down the hallway of one of the academic buildings, um, and I see this crowd in front of me, and I wonder, who are, why are these people following whoever's in front of this crowd? And so I pressed my way, and I got to the head of the crowd, and the person who they were following was Stokely Carmichael. So he, he went into a class to give a lecture, and after he lectured in that class, he spoke in the, in the uh, university, um, the Institute Chapel at that time. And there was a philosophy professor uh, who 
ask him a question, trying to put him on the spot, because we're talking like 1974, I think. And in 1967, you know, uh, Stokely Carmichael started to chant Black Power. I said, Power! So the professor asked him, since 67, uh, you know, was there any need for black power anymore? What had happened to the black power? And Carmichael responded to him this way. He said, yesterday, there were no black mayors of any southern city in this country. Today, there is one that means that's progress. And that one was Maynard Jackson. It's power. People don't understand that black people built the Hartsfield. Black people built the airport. Maynard Jackson, one of my first manager, his father, Mr. Parks, was the one that, that they got the bond to build the actual airport. Black people have been controlling the airport since, the, since it was built. If you think about it, think about it, black people controlled LaGuardia, LAX, for 20 years. Bernard Park, yes. That was my first manager. We, uh, when we were hanging out with Jason, he was like, oh, you got to talk to Bernard, blah, blah, blah. And he yeah. gave me Bernard's number. That's Bernard's. So I'm, I'm going to try to get him. He's your Bernard, manager? That was our first manager. Oh, yeah. We should hire him. Yeah, yes. yeah. He's friends with my cousin, apparently. Yes. My, my family's name. He's my OG. All right. I yeah. hit him the other day, but I, I just texted him again because like, he reminded me. Yeah. Like, he is so important. He could tell you about his father. And really, Bernard is a child of the civil rights. His dad was right there in the mix of all what Atlanta turned into. His father was one of the key people that put the airport together. Maynard and his counterparts meant progress in a part of the country that we don't normally associate with progress, no offense. With the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, he instilled a pride in both white and black Atlantans that still exist today. We don't often think about the transformative nature of an airport, they're not the most exciting places in the world, and often we, we hate going to them, but they're amazing places. They're like cities within cities, their own sort of like ecosystem of sorts. It's a 24-hour business that requires thousands of jobs. Maynard recognized this, and in recognizing this, did some super gangster shit. He put black people on and expanding Atlanta's airport. In passenger volume, you are in the fourth busiest airport in the world. That is, except between the hours of 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. During those hours, it's the busiest in the world. On a peak day, you can expect to see 30 to 35,000 people arriving and departing from this airport. Yet it isn't Kennedy, it isn't Orly, it isn't Shannon. It's Atlanta, Georgia. The gateway to that part of this proud land that we call the South. Airport diversification brought to you by Georgia Tech professor Dr. Ron Baer. He basically said, unless the Atlanta Airport Authority diversifies and unless some contracts go to black firms, the airport's not going to be built. He'll just right. shut it down. And that scared a lot of people. Now, the whites felt that Maynick was anti-white. He was not anti-white. He was just trying to diversify things. Right. But he was rocking the boat, obviously. Most often, airports to a city are about function. But to Atlanta, the airport's about pride. I've never really heard anybody talk about their local airport with such respect. Here's Charles Ruthizer, author of this awesome book called Imagineering Atlanta. 
Well, in many ways, the airport made Atlanta into what it be because it was not going to be able to attract lots of, you know, national companies or international companies unless it was connected to the world. And the airport was enormous. And because of the evolution of our airline system around hubs and spokes, it became the principal hub for, you know, Delta and Eastern Airlines. And it made it really easy for people to come and do business to Atlanta because everyone you know, you're going to heaven or hell, but you have to make a connection in Atlanta. And it became something of a giant, a giant scale. I mean, it is the busiest airport in the world today and was, I think, the second busiest back in, in the 1990s and actually grew tremendously and employs over 50,000 people. It is, on any given day, probably, at least back in the 90s, it was said to be the second most populous city in the city of Atlanta because of the volume of people moving through that place. Now, very few actually, you know, most people were just changing planes. They're not getting off, but it created the infrastructure. In fact, there is, I think, the important role of building a black middle class that didn't have anything to do with direct city action. That was through institutions like the Atlanta University Center, Morehouse, comprising Clark Atlanta, Morehouse, Spellman, Morris Brown, that had, you know, for generations attracted a large number of, uh, of, of people from all over the country to these institutions, some of whom who stayed and, um, you know, developed careers in law, medicine, business, and, and the professions. And now a word from our sponsors. Alongside political action, some of the roots of the black middle class in Atlanta as we know it were planted in the AUC. See what I did just there? Ladies and gentlemen, Freaknik co-creator and Spelman grad, Sharon Toomer. So um, you instantly, in 82, I arrived and instantly knew that this was a city that was special and good for Black people economically, um, culturally, socially, you see that right away. Mm -hmm. So you see it in the entrepreneurs, um, Black-owned banks, um, of course, in city government, right, municipal government. And we credit, for instance, Maynard for helping to propel a Black middle class, Um and that was through targeted attention to an inclusive uh, inclusivity of black businesses in city government. So all of that is very clear when I arrived. But AU Center and all the schools in that is largely responsible for many of our black middle class, right? And a lot of people who go to those schools actually stay in Atlanta. So that's a boon for Atlanta. As you may or may not know at this point, because I've said it a million times, I was raised in an upper-middle-class suburban community. It was different. Being part and parcel of, like, a, a real black middle class didn't mean shit where I was from. There weren't really any, like, Stokely Carmichaels running around in Okemos, Michigan. As a black kid there, you weren't really surrounded by people who look like you. Here's Henny the Business, Morales alum and current professor, on what it's like to grow up as like young Obamas, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, and, and and I think you when you have you know and you'll you can go anywhere in Atlanta and ask somebody where they're from, and nine times out of ten they're not from Atlanta. You know they're from somewhere else, and they transplanted here, and a lot of us transplanted from 
some of these schools or their parents went to some of these schools and they're the, you know, first generation, second gen- first generation born here or something of their lineage or whatever. But um, like you said, there's such a middle class that is, you know, everywhere you go, you're seeing um, a black face doing something, whether it's, you know, from the high end to the low, right. you know, and that's just not what, what you see in other major cities, you know. Uh, and that's why when you get to Atlanta and you start to move your way, way around the city, you'll start to see just how much you see um, just the African-American culture in, in, in itself um, from, you know, the very wealthy to those who are still struggling to try to figure it out. The Black Mecca and its significance, as told by J.T. Money, in a way much more cooler than I or anybody else could ever describe it. That's what it means to me. That's like the black Mecca, you know, I, I believe. Um, a nigga stand a chance in Atlanta. Um, see, boom, back in 90 when I first went there, we doing an interview with some dude at the plaza. And uh, it's this young dude, you know, he, he, he about 30 years old. And he like, oh yeah, that's the owner. He own this whole. Place. I'm like, what? A nigga? You know, a, a black, you own this shit? Oh yeah, that's mine. You know, I'm like, and I start seeing niggas owning stuff. There, black people was thriving. Yeah, that's what it was like. I mean, and again, I was, I'm growing up here at the time, so it's so normal to me. I don't have an, any other way to to conceive of this. It's my reality, right? But I would hear that from family members when they came here for the weekend or like, you know, cousins or uncles or, um, you know, whomever. It was just like, man, there's so many black people here. It's, it's kind of like the same. There's two things that you would hear from from out out of towners when they came to Atlanta for the first time and they were just riding around. It's so many trees here and it's so many black people here. And both were positive. That was Rodney Carmichael, journalist and author. A couple days later, we sat poolside with his homegirl and, as of now, fellow podcaster Dr. Regina Bradley and spoke a bit about the diversity of Black Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, it just points to the fact that all Black folks ain't the same. Like, there's there's multiple ways to be Black. <laughs> there's Black, there's Black, <laughs> there's Blackity Black. <laughs> Um, and, and Atlanta kind of presents that. I mean, it depends on who you talk to. If you're talking to, you know, the gay community, Atlanta is like a, a mecca for, for black gay folks. If you're talking about business folks, and Atlanta is a mecca for black, you know, black business and, and entrepreneurship to, to thrive. Right. Um, or the, the potential for it to, to thrive. And uh, I, I think that's, a, you put it in a really good point, right? It's like there's multiple types of blacks that exist um, in the city. I'm not talking about like black folks, just like black identities, black experiences that exist in the same space in ways that they don't diverge in other parts of the country. You're not saying that, you know, all black folks will get together in like New York or whatever, but it's just, it's, it's on display differently down here. <laughs> it's on display down here. When speaking about Atlanta, the term black Mecca, in quotes, is often thrown around willy nilly, but it's not without merit. It's a pilgrimage that's made by people of color all across the country. Born in the Bay, but raised in Atlanta, lightweight. Too Short told me what brought him there. Two things. For one, in 1977, 78-ish, somewhere in there, 
my mother works for the IRS. She, that's the only job she ever had for 30 years. She worked for IRS, Internal Revenue Service. And she relocated to Atlanta for a promotion in 1977. So in 1977, I finished the seventh grade at a school in College Park. And then I went to eighth grade at another school in College Park. And seventh grade, I went to the Meadows. And in eighth grade, I went to M.D. Collins, which later on became a school called Banneker, which is pretty popular amongst Atlanta rappers and stuff. But uh, that was right at the time with the child murders. For almost two years, the bodies have kept coming out of Atlanta's rivers and woods. And week after week, police speak of sorrow and sympathy, but not a solution. Almost a year after the task force was set up, police can't answer who or why. They don't know how or where or even how many of the black victims may have been killed by the same person. They killed the black children. Without exception, all the families, all the children come from families of relatively low income backgrounds. Two bodies were discovered this afternoon on opposite sides of the metro area and both appear to be children. Action News is next on WSB-TV Channel 2. It's 11 o'clock and there's a curfew in Atlanta. Do you know where your children are? So in case you couldn't tell by that awesome montage, this is like our Dateline 2020 segment of the show. The Atlanta child murders that went down from 79 to 81 were a pivotal time in the city's history. A time where the city narrowly avoided blowing up. In a post-civil rights era, black kids were getting killed at random and it scared the shit out of people. For a time period so dark, literally and figuratively, Rico had some really lighthearted and funny shit to say. Oh man, yeah, I remember. Shit, I was prime. I was prime um, real estate, <laughs> but I was just too fast. I was too fast as a, as, as an athlete. I remember black kids my age was like, man, he can't catch me. I don't give a damn. Wait, wait, one person? Nah. But then, then you start realizing like, well, maybe it's the Ku Klux Klan on the back of a truck. So that's when it became a little more serious. It wasn't, we, we, we didn't have Halloween for a couple of years. Halloween would come around. They'd be like, nobody trick-or-treats at nighttime. Just, you know, stay in your... It was like that. It was like that. Since I'm a weirdo, I've always lightweight been obsessed with serial killers. And by lightweight, I mean heavyweight. Although the Atlanta child murders occurred over 40 years ago, recently, in the last couple of years, because of a podcast, the murders have come back into public consciousness. The problem we're trying to address now is not one which simply exists in the city of Atlanta because of its current series of murders and abductions of young children, but really a national phenomenon, the decline of the, the family, the decline of interest of neighbors and each other, the decline of community. And we hope that through this project here, we can perhaps demonstrate to others in other parts of the city of Atlanta and in other parts of the United States that the process can work. Y'all remember Caroline from episode one, the so-called white Nisha to my black Adnan? We sat down and talked about that time back in Atlanta in the late 70s and early 80s and what her parents experienced while living in Atlanta. Describe, you know, your mother and father in the context of growing up or, or living in Atlanta from your perspective. I mean, my folks are both like multi-generation Atlantans. They grew up there. My dad's, like, both of their parents were from Atlanta. Like, they, they've been there forever. They grew up in Decatur. They, like, could have known each other growing up. It's a small world, but they're both, uh, you know, pretty Southern at heart. I don't know. I mean, we had a pretty good childhood. They, they were, they provided, but, like, their, their country is fucked deep down. <laughs> 
So Savannah and I went down to Decatur. And much to Caroline's chagrin, we sat down with her parents without her. They had invited us to a barbecue at their home. In addition to flexing on us with their chicken game by way of a contraption known as the Jotisserie, they told us about what the child murders meant to them back in the day. Here's Mark. Here's Averill. Jones. It was pretty scary. I mean, thinking about, you know, the number of people, young men that were going missing or whatever. I mean, it was really, I think it was, I mean, I thought it was scary. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I looked at it too as, God, how do we want to be represented? We got this stuff going on and, you know, Atlanta needs to figure this out. It was so racially centered. And that there was a, it, I remember at a point in time, there was a thought that maybe it was some, that there was some racial hatred aspect to it that mm-hmm. some white guy was killing all these black children which absolutely could have been you know taken place uh, but it was so there was a lot of race discussion around it um, and then when they found this guy Wayne Williams I think it was so ambiguous as to what kind of solution that was to the what happened you know I'd always known about the sinister acts attributed to the one and only Wayne Bertram Williams, government name. But it wasn't until I spoke to Michael Bond that I really understand the indelible mark that Williams left in the zeitgeist of black Atlanta. You know, and I was over at a girlfriend's house over in West End one night and a guy in a yellow station wagon offered me a ride. And it wasn't Wayne Williams. Okay, I know how Wayne Williams looked. This was an older, brown-skinned, heavyset guy with a, you know, unkept beard. And he kept trying to get me to get into his car. You know, and I was, I guess I was in the ninth grade then. And so I was so terrified that I was waiting on the 68 Donnelly. I'll never forget it, uh, the bus to come, because I would wait on her porch. You know, it was only probably about 50 yards, you know, from the bus stop. Uh, but it was around the corner. So right, you know, I have my little bus schedule, so I wait for the bus to actually, you know, be coming down the street before I go stand at the stop. But for some reason, she went in the house early, and I was out there for a minute. And this guy tried to get me to get in the car, you know. So I ran back to her street, you know, banging on the door and all this other kind of stuff. And her mother drove me home that particular night. But I was terrified because it was the exact same station wagon that that they said that, the people were using to kidnap those kids. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Since the first days of this administration, we've been deeply concerned and involved in assisting the city of Atlanta and its citizens in attempting to bring an end to one of the most tragic situations that has ever confronted an American community. 20 children have been murdered and another is still missing. This nightmare has continued for more than 19 months and I'm determined to continue to assist the city of Atlanta in bringing it to an end.
And now a word from our sponsors. So when I got back, when I got older and I started making music, in 1989 was the first time I went to Atlanta as an adult, as an entertainer. And I was on tour with an NWA Straight Outta Compton tour. So, you know, I had a ball, man. Like, it was, it was, it was something that, like a homecoming sort of thing that I was like, I fucking love Atlanta. Like, it was in me. So now you got, I didn't move to Atlanta until 93. So this happens in 89. I'm making the connection from living there to the new Atlanta to getting the love as, as an artist and stuff. And, you know, I'm like, I like this. I like this. Remember certain things about certain streets or whatever. So 93 pops up and I hear about this event called the Freak Nick. I'm, I've always been a guy who's like, you know, what's the, what's the event? Where is it at? Back on that black mecca tip, the Hodge down south, so to speak, specifically to Atlanta, it, it sort of manifested itself in, in many different ways for many different people. Whether it be people that went to universities and stayed, came for opportunities or jobs and stayed, or evidently like went down to Freaknik, met somebody, or didn't meet somebody, but just loved it and stayed. People from around the country whose grandparents or parents who had been part of the Great Migration up north started coming back. Back to this new promised land, Atlanta, the capital of the South. Rodney Carmichael. The Great Migration is generations of black folks escaping the South, right? It's Jim Crow era, and it's, it's, it's not all good in the South at all for, for, for black people. And so the economic opportunities um, are, are to the North. They are to the West, you know, um, if you live in Mississippi, your family probably moved to Chicago or Detroit. And, you know, um, if you lived in Arkansas, Arkansas, your family probably moved to L.A. But, yeah, all of those people from those northern cities, east coast, west coast, start trickling back to the south um, at some point, I think maybe around the 70s and more so 80s and by the 90s it's a floodgate you know and and Atlanta becomes really the hub of that in a lot of ways because there is so much opportunity here because the cost of living is so much cheaper here man they had people I remember like I said when I was in high school we used to call them the New York boys mm. they were moving down here in floods and coming to school talking about how much they hate Atlanta it's the country but their parents loved it because they could come down here and buy a house for cash at, you know, half the cost of what they were paying. And rent. Exactly. Yeah. And rent in New York. And um, so, yeah, the New York boys had just had to deal with it. <laughs> you know, they had they had to learn to love it even if they hated it. Um, but that's part of the remigration. And um, and Freaknik is really a part of that story. So that, that helped push Atlanta toward becoming that mecca. Because that's when people start feeling like, oh, I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm, move, oh, I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm going to Atlanta. I'm moving to Atlanta. I'm like, Atlanta ain't just Freaknik. It ain't just Freaknik. But that's what they thought. They came here. And guess what? They end up getting jobs because the economy started growing. And we had jobs to offer. We had an influx of, of, of jobs. So that it wasn't like they came here and was homeless. Most black people, we can't, we can't retrace our roots further than 
back further than the South. I mean, we got all of these fancy DNA tests now, and they can halfway, you know, kind of pinpoint where your genealogy may have led back to. Right. But the thing that you know, the thing that you could see in photo albums, the thing that the things that your grandmother or your great grandmother, if you're lucky enough to talk to her, can tell you are things that happened and started for us, our origins being in the South, you know? And so that's just part of our DNA, you know? And I think that, you know, that has a lot to do with why the South does feel like home for black people in America, regardless of where you grew up or where you reside now, you know, because your roots, your literal roots are here. You came through here at some point or another, whether we wanted to or not, right? And so it's the land. We're tied to the land, you know. Uh, our blood is, is is baked in the land, you know. And I think that's what we hear calling us back. And when it's calling us back and it just so happens to benefit our pockets at the same time mm-hmm. in a positive light, then, yeah, who wouldn't want to go back home? It's funny, you, you bring up the, the DNA test thing, and, it's, you know, you, obviously you can only go so far. So, like, my girl, mm-hmm. she's, like, half French and half Norwegian. Like, she's from upstate New York, but, like, mm-hmm. yeah, we were doing it together. And she can just go, keep going and going and going and going and going back yeah. to my shit. I'm like, all right, I'm done. Like, <laughs> it stops It stops at, like, 1845 or some shit. And it was like, yeah. they're, they're not going to find anything else. They came here during a time when the city was starting to boom. So now you had people, so now that you're making your parents, I mean, I had no, no so many people that be like, man, I moved here doing Freaking It, you know, going to school, meeting my girl, I got married with a family. Perfect. That's what we dream about, right? A lot of people I've been speaking to about Freaknik in Atlanta were older heads. I mean, I'm no spring chicken myself, but I did want to speak to somebody who was around my age. So I reached out to Zach Fox, comedian, artist, filmmaker, and rapper. And we had a little fireside chat about Freaknik and family. So Freaknik. Yeah. You moved to Atlanta after it was over. Mm-hmm. What's your, your, your... Just general thoughts. Even if I what, was in Atlanta, yeah. I wouldn't have been at that shit. Why? <laughs> I mean, I was born in 1990. Yeah, By the time I was even born, Freaknik was still uh, still pretty much a thing for, for students, for black college students from multiple areas in the South. Um, I wish I could have been a baby at Freaknik. That would have been dope. That would have been dope. Little baby getting twerked on. There's definitely babies from Freaknik, and that's the one thing yeah. that Savannah has not found yet. A freak Nick baby? Oh, y'all trying to find someone who's conceived on the hood of a car or something. Yes. Freak Nick. Okay. Imagine that. This, there's there's great. somebody out there. There's there's multiple people. There's a really like there's two really, really good parents who haven't told their kid. Yeah, because what? They would be five. Let's say, let's say it was 
Well, no, I think they would be ready for that information. There's like a Huxable family out there. There's like a doctor exactly, and a lawyer. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. A doctor yeah. and a lawyer who fucked on the hood of a car at Freak Nick. And they're like, Morale Spellman. We can't tell our kid that. Atlanta. Next time on Freak Nick, a discourse on a paradise lost. And the traffic came up to a complete standstill, and everybody got out of their cars, played music, and danced on the highway. So then it becomes like getting out, meeting people from other places, seeing, oh, you got Texas license place too? Where y'all from? We from Dallas. Oh, we from Houston. You know what I'm saying? It was completely stopped. Traffic was completely stopped in every direction on every street. And kids had gotten out of the car and were dancing and Atlanta. drinking and partying and playing music. <laughs> and so I didn't know what was going on. Freaknik, A Discourse on a Paradise Lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Frierson. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent and Keith Memminger. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Technically produced by Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espitia and Louis San Giorgio. Associate producers Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. We were mixed by Sue Polino. Music supervision by Caroline Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Paciano. Thank you, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta McGreeny. Atlanta. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.